Thank you, our Father, for your holy word and for the message of the gospel. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Farmers, more than most, are interested in the weather. They'll check the records going back as far as they can. They'll check the rain gauge every time it rains and they'll ask their neighbours how much rain you had. They'll check the satellite forecast, the sea surface temperatures, the southern oscillation index, the long-range forecasters. They're even interested in your arthritis if they think it'll give them a bit of a clue. The reason for their interest is not too complicated. Knowing rainfall history, what's happening now, and what's likely to happen in the future allows them to plan, allows them to get ready. It's a wise thing to do. Ultimately, rain will determine what their future is on the land. So what would you think if I could tell you what sort of future you can expect, not on the land, but for all eternity? Your future on the land's important, but it's short, at best, a generation or two, but eternity, well, that's a long time. What if I told you I know the history of what God's done in the past, I've checked the records, I've heard the stories, I've also got a good idea of what he's up to in the present. I've been engaging it with great interest, spoken to a lot of my neighbours just to check, and I also know what he's going to do in the future not with 60, 70 or 90% probability, but with 100% certainty. The only thing I can't tell you exactly is when it's going to happen, a bit like the rain. But I know it will, and when it does, it'll change everything and everyone forever. Would you be interested to check it out? Would you want to get ready for it? Would you at least want to know about it? Well, the obvious answer is, well, yes, of course. Not to prepare for eternity is madness. It's like not caring if it will ever rain again. But the sad reality is that most people don't want to know. Unless it's all good news, they don't want to hear it. Even if it can be good news, they don't want to change. I spoke to a man a little while ago and I asked him if he was a Christian. He said he wasn't, but he did try to live a good life, he told me. When I asked him what that good life was, he said, well, I seek to treat others how I'd want to be treated myself. I wonder if he thought that one up himself. This man didn't want to be a Christian, but he wanted to live like a Christian. I told him it was a good way to live, but it was an awful way to die. I mean, what's he going to do when he faces his maker? What's he going to say to God? Indeed, what will God say to him? Perhaps God will say to him, Come into my kingdom, you who have ignored me all your life and rejected my son who died for you on the cross. You seem like a nice fellow, you did your best, and I guess that's good enough. Well, I don't think so. 
Yet that's how a lot of Australians think, or, or fail to think. They plan for the next crop, they plan for their retirement, but there's no plan beyond their immediate horizon. There is no plan for eternity. But God does have a plan, and it deals with eternity past and eternity future. He's laid it out for us in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's a big read. But if you want it in one book, and a short one at that, then the book of Joel is as good as any. The book of Joel not only lays out God's plan, it's also God's tsunami warning system. It's his cyclone alert. It's his SOI. So reading the book of Joel seems like a wise thing to do. Joel was written in the middle of the 8th century BC to the southern kingdom of Judah. The prophecy doesn't specifically indicate why he's writing, but clearly he's calling them to repent. He, he wants them to change their hearts and not just their outward appearance. Perhaps they were being merely outward in their religious practice. So he tells them in chapter 2, verse 13, Rend your hearts and not your garments, and return to the Lord. At the time that Joel is writing the prophecy, there's this huge locust plague going on. And Joel uses the plague as a picture of God's judgment on his people. He describes the locust as a thundering army with the Lord at its head. Verse 11 in chapter 2, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. He is God judging his people and calling them to repentance. He is God doing exactly what he told Moses he would do. That This is the old covenant at work, and the terms of the old covenant are for obedience God's promise is blessing, and for disobedience, he promises judgment. But underlying this, there is a God who desperately loves his people. Verse 13 tells us that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And when his people come to him with a broken heart and they call out for mercy, he relents from sending calamity. So we read from verse 18, Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And from verse 27, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other, never again will my people be shamed. What a great and a merciful God that we have. And God is faithful to his covenant because both the locust plague and God's gracious response to their repentance are consistent with his covenant promise. We know from this what God has been up to. He's been calling a people to himself to live in holiness 
under his kingship. But it hasn't gone so good for Israel. You see, life's been a cycle of their sin and sorrow and repentance and God's mercy and restoration. But Joel goes on to say that this old covenant, that this life under the law given to Moses, well, that's going to change one day. The cycle will be broken and things will get better. Not by anything that Israel does, but by what God does. And afterwards, Joel reports in verse 28, afterwards he says, God will pour out his spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And that's exactly what did happen some 700 years later at Pentecost. And the Apostle Peter was there that day. And when he addressed the crowd, he says, You see what's happening now? This is exactly as Joel said it would be. This is different to anything that's happened before. This is the beginning of something new. From now on, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Lord that Peter is talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter's summary of the new covenant blessing is this. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what God is up to in the present. He's offering forgiveness in the name of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Judgment and death is still the penalty for sin, but Christ has borne that for us. At peace with God and life is still the reward for obedience, but it is Christ's obedience that has won that for us. What's new for us is that the gift of God's Holy Spirit allows us to do what Israel could never do. God's Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out so that we can rend our hearts and not just our garments. That's what God's been up to since the day of Pentecost and that's what he's still doing today. So what about the future? What can we expect from God? Well, in chapter 3, Joel takes us to the final day, the great and terrible day. And on that day, all the nations will be judged because they rejected God and they rejected his people. So we read from verse 1, In those days and at that time, when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and there I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. Rejecting God and his people is a serious mistake. So what's going to happen? What can we be sure of 
or from verse 9, we can be sure that God will call all the nations to war. Proclaim this among the nations and prepare for war. Rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let even the weakling say, I am strong. It seems clear that God is calling all who oppose him, or all who have rejected his Christ and have rejected his people, to take up arms against him. It seems like a ridiculous thing to do. This is like Inverell Public School Rugby League team versus the Queensland State of Origin team. But as ridiculous as that might seem, this is exactly what we do when we reject God. We shake our puny fists at God in defiance of him. And the outcome is just as you would expect. Have a look from verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. On the day that God judges, all his enemies will be utterly defeated before him. All who oppose him, all who reject his Christ, all who reject his people. But to those who love God and his Christ, to those who love Christ and his church, we read in verse 16, the Lord will be a refuge and a stronghold. On that great and terrible day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everyone will know from verse 17 that the Lord is our God, who dwells in Zion, his holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy, and foreigners will never overrun it again. On that great and terrible day, the Lord will be the champion of his people. That's what's coming. But for now, we live in a unique period in God's plan. Since the time of Christ's resurrection until now, we by faith have access to God's grace, his mercy and his forgiveness. Through Christ, we have access into the very presence of God. But these days are coming to an end. The day of grace could end at any time. And when it does, God's judgment will be final. When Jesus returns, for we who believe, it will be a great and a glorious day. But if we don't believe, it will be a great and a terrible day, a day of judgment. If we are wise, if we are planning for our future beyond this life, then where we stand on that day will be the most important decision we ever make. And if we're not sure, then our highest priority is to be sure. 
To be unsure of our salvation may simply be ignorance, I hope not, but for many it's a false humility. It's false because it implies that God's work of salvation is less than sufficient and that with a little bit more effort you could probably finish off what he's failed to complete. But both those, nonsense, that both those notions are ridiculous. We cannot afford to face God hoping that we've done enough to earn our reward. We have not and we will not because we cannot. We can only face God confident that Jesus has done all that's necessary for our salvation. And if we turn from our sins and ask God to forgive us, if we commit to putting Jesus first, second and third in our life, then we will belong to God. We will be forgiven and we will be given his Holy Spirit. The promise is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brothers and sisters, these are the days of grace. So don't let unbelief or uncertainty rob you of God's salvation. When the day of the Lord comes, it will include everyone without exception. For some it will be a day of judgment, so repent therefore and turn to God, so that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. For some it will be a day of salvation, so rejoice and be glad therefore, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we wait for that day, for the coming of Jesus. And while we wait, we occupy until he comes. We share the good news of the gospel of grace, and we share the warning that a day of judgment is coming. We go about our lives as if we're expecting the coming of a king. We store up treasures, not for this life, where rust and moth will eat them away, but we store treasures in heaven. Only what we do for Christ has eternal value. And on the day of judgment, the day of our salvation, we shall receive a crown, a crown of life for those that love God and persevere under trial, a crown of righteousness for those who long for Christ's appearing. So let us do that. Let us remain faithful when we are tested. And that's getting harder and harder to do. Every day, public opinion is shifting further and further away from a Christian worldview. The day is coming soon when you shall be ridiculed and persecuted for the sake of Christ's name. Stay faithful to the end and you will receive a crown of life. And let's also continue to long for his appearing. Don't let the concerns of this life confuse us or consume us. This life seems like total reality, but it's actually a shadow of an eternal reality. The kingdom of God 
is our real home. So let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, who shall perfect our faith and bring it to completion. And though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we've been renewed day by day. So we don't lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Brothers and sisters, be ready, for the Son of Man will come at an hour when we do not expect him. Remain faithful to the end, especially under trial, and remain watchful, ever looking for the glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ the Lord. Let us pray. We thank you, our Lord God, that you have revealed yourself to us through your beloved Son. Thank you that you have made clear to us your plan of salvation and include us as your sons and daughters through faith in Christ Jesus. Help us to remain faithful to you, no matter the cost. Keep us longing to see you in all your majesty and glory, that we might not lose sight of your eternal purposes for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.